Resilience, the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties, toughness. Many have fallen in professional sports. Only a few have gotten up and continue to persevere. James Braddock overcame extreme poverty and injury back in the 1920s. He severely fractured his dominant hand and was forced to give up boxing. In order to provide for his family, he became a longshoreman during the Great Depression. During that time, Braddock was forced to use his left hand more frequently, which strengthened it and allowed him to get back into fighting. He was given a title fight against a world champion, Max Baer, and in one of the greatest upsets in history, Braddock won as a 10-1 underdog to become the heavyweight champion of the world. As a 13-year-old, Bethany Hamilton was already a professional surfer and would go out onto the water nearly every day to train in Hawaii. An ordinary morning found her surfing with her friend along Tunnels Beach in the island of Kauai. While she was laying on her surfboard belly down and talking with her friend, a 14-foot-long tiger shark bit off her left arm. Learning to live with one arm, Bethany was determined to return to surfing, and one month later, she was back on her board and entered her first major competition less than three months after the incident. Since then, she has inspired others to courageously pursue their dreams despite any obstacles. Alex Smith made his NFL debut in 2005 as a quarterback. In 2018, his 14th professional season, Smith was tackled and suffered a spiral and compound fracture to his tibia and fibula. After surgery, he developed an infection that required him to undergo 17 surgeries in the next nine months. Doctors suggested amputating his leg, but managed to save it and required a year to rehabilitate. At the age of 36, he was cleared by his doctors to resume football activities and became the NFL Comeback Player of the Year following the 2020 season. These stories are only a few examples of the greatness that showed up when the only option was to fight. These people showed us that there's nothing short of death that was worthy to take away their determination. Olympic athlete Bob Richards once said, many champions are made champions by setbacks. What's holding you back? What's keeping you from pressing on? Well, I want to welcome everybody here today. We're grateful for all of you. Also, those who are on the stream and on TV, we're thankful for you as well. We're concluding our series today called Troublemaker, and then next week we'll begin a brand new series called The End, as we're going to do a little study on the return of Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not, but this church almost didn't exist. Well, for sure, it almost didn't exist in the form that it is today. There was a rumor when I was over at Hoffmantown Church on the other side of town that the pastor at the time, a man named Charles Lowry, was interested in starting a church on the west side of town. Well, I wanted to start a church myself, and so I went down to his office, and I said, hey, would you consider me to be the guy who would lead this charge of starting this new church? Well, Charles was a little bit apprehensive. Up until this point in time, all I'd ever talked to was students before. He said, well, we need to find out if adults will listen to you. Well, I think we figured that out, haven't we? Not so much. And so uh, uh, he said, well, let's see if we can find out if adults will listen to you. We'll have you start a class. I'll even get your class going. It'll be a class to start a church on the west side. We'll have a big banquet and ask everybody who lives on the west side to come. So I went to the big banquet, and there was over 500 people. Over 500 people went to that church that lived on the west side at the time, and they just thought it was wonderful that the church was going to start a church on the west side. That meant they didn't have to drive over the river anymore. And there was a rumor going around that Charles was going to be the pastor of that church too. Somehow, someway, he was going to drive from one side of town over to the other side of town, and I don't know how he was going to pull that off, but that, that's, what, that's what they thought. 
And so they were excited, like, oh, Charles is coming to us. We're not going to lose our pastor. They're going to start a church right in our own neighborhood. This is wonderful. It was until they announced that I was going to be the pastor. And at that point, you know, kind of the air went out of the room, and uh, it didn't go over so well. And we started our class the next week. I got up, and I said, I really look forward to seeing all of you here. I thought, this is going to be a piece of cake. 500 people are going to come to my class. I remember setting up my classroom. I had chairs everywhere. Only 30 people showed up. And I was a little bit shocked that only 30 people showed up. And in fairness, the 30 people that did show up, they weren't even going to go start the church on the west side. We were grabbing people as they walked by in the hallway, conning them to come in because we had coffee and food. That's what we were doing. Well, we were in trouble. And I went to Charles. I said, only the, well, 30 people showed up. He said, hey, we'll be patient. Let's see, what, let's see what you can do, kid. Let's see if you can grow this thing. So over the course of the next 18 months, we, we did everything we could. We invited as many people as we could, and we had a great time. And the class grew from around 30 people to just over 400 people that were coming. But this caused another problem for the church. See, the church was in some financial crisis at the time, and they were concerned. They said, oh, my goodness, we're not in a financial position to start a church on the west side. And if we send 400 people to the other side, that means their tithes and offerings are going to go over to the other side. It might sink the mama ship. I remember going into meetings and they said, we don't, we're not even certain how we're going to start this church. Now, we don't want you to tell anybody about it. Just keep doing your classes, you would. But there's a great chance that we're not going to be able to pull this off financially speaking. And then as the finances got a little bit better, that they had an idea that, you know, maybe Charles should pastor both churches. I remember that meeting. They called me in. They said, you know, we think, we think Charles should pastor both churches of the churches. So I said, well, how in the world is he going to get from one church over to the other church in time for service? They said, we're going to rent a helicopter. Can you imagine? I said, seriously, I'm that bad that you got to get a helicopter? They said, well, it's just an idea. It's just an idea. Said, well, you got to put a helipad down. You got to get a helicopter. I mean, there goes Charles across town, right? He's going to go preach at the other church. Well, they finally gave up on that. And it was up and down. I mean, every meeting I went to, we're going to have the church. We're not going to have the church. I'm going to be the pastor. I'm not going to be the pastor. It was a very stressful time in my life. But I just kept praying. And I just kept being faithful to God. And I just believed that God would overcome any obstacle that might come our way. So finally the day came. I, I just said, guys, we, we got to decide here. What are we going to do? Are we going to start this church? Are we not going to start this church? I need a date. Because 18 months had gone by. And the people in my class, they were becoming somewhat disillusioned. There was a little rumor that it was never, ever going to happen. And I thought, you, we got to put a line in the sand here. So they finally gave me a date. I remember standing before my class, over 400 people in attendance. I said, I'm so excited. We've got a date. We are go for launch, people. Now, here's the deal. If you're not going to come start the church on the west side, if you've just been coming to this class because it's been a lot of fun, hey, I'm glad that you've come, but now you need to find another class because this class is only for those who are going to start that church on the west side. And I was certain that my charisma, my personality, my love for Jesus would cause all 400 and some odd people to just come back and say, Todd, we're with you. We're ready to start the church. But I'm not that charismatic. You understand that, right? So the next week, only 100, 120 people showed back up again. That was devastating to see all those people go. Didn't have a vision for the west side of town. 
And so we prayed together as a group of people. We believed that God would overcome every obstacle. We set that date on our calendar and we invited all of our friends to come. And on Super Bowl Sunday, 1999, we opened the doors to this church and just over 300 people showed up. And the rest is history. Now, why in the world? Thank you. Now, I, I, I like you right there. I like you a lot. I appreciate that. Why in the world do I tell you that story? Because I just think some of you, you're at this crossroad. And you're, for some reason, you're just ready to give up on the dream that God's placed inside of you. And, and I just want you to hear this. If God brought you to it, he'll get you through it. He can overcome any obstacle. He can overcome anything that comes your way. If this is what God is about, if this is what God wants to happen, it will happen, and your job is to just be faithful. Friends, we are a group of people, aren't we, that believe that God can do the impossible, that the impossible becomes possible. Isn't what that first Easter Sunday morning is all about? I mean, who has ever heard of someone rising again from the dead after being dead for three days? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to go back in time, and I want us to put on the skin of the ladies who go to the tomb on that Easter Sunday morning to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, now you know that these women are grief-stricken. What has taken place over the last few days has just been absolutely devastating. All their hopes, all their dreams have been shattered at Jesus' death. And so they begin to go over a hillside. And I can't prove this, but what do you bet the cross was still up? I mean, Jesus was crucified late in the afternoon. The, 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 the Passover was starting. The Sabbath was coming. You weren't allowed to do any work. What do you bet that cross was still there? And what do you bet as they crossed over? Because where Jesus was buried from where the cross was, it wasn't a very far distance. What do you bet it brought back the horror of that day? What do you bet they walked up to that cross and they still saw the blood stains that were there? Stains of blood from his back and stains of blood from his hands and his feet where they put nine-inch nails into him. A, a, a stain of blood from the, from the cr crown of thorns that was placed upon his head. Oh, the, the task before them was absolutely gut-wrenching. And as they're walking towards the tomb, they feel an earthquake. The earth begins to shake. They don't know what in the world is going on. But something significant is happening at the tomb. Now remember at the tomb, the Romans had placed a Roman seal on the tomb, hadn't they? And they had put the Roman elite guard to guard the tomb for fear that the disciples might steal the body away. So the ladies are heading that direction to anoint the body of Jesus, and they see that the stone has been rolled away. And the elite Roman guard, they're nowhere to be found. Where have they gone? Why did they run away in fright? Well, we know the answer. Inside the tomb, there's two angels. One at the, where Jesus' head was, and one where Jesus' feet were. And what did the angels say to the women? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He has risen, just as he said. And oh my goodness, can you imagine how excited they must have been? And Mary Magdalene, she takes out, and she's looking for the disciples who, by the way, are in hiding. And she finds Peter and John. 
She says, Jesus has risen again from the dead. And both of them had to see for themselves this amazing sight. So they take off for the tomb as well. And John outran Peter. I think he did more cardio than Peter did. And he got there a little bit quicker. But he stops at the entrance of the tomb and he looks inside. And he sees something that causes him to have faith that Jesus has risen again. What did he see? Well, they would take strips and they would wrap the body much like a mummy would be wrapped. And all those strips that were on the body of Jesus, all those strips had just fallen intact onto the ground. As if it was a cocoon and the body had just floated and just disappeared from it. That was all John needed to see. He said he has risen again from the dead. But Peter ran to the tomb, went all the way in, saw the exact same evidence. And walked away and said, I'm I'm not certain. I don't know if that Jesus has really risen from the dead. I don't know what in the world has taken place. It was that night when the disciples were hiding in the upper room for fear that they would be taken away and put on the next cross out of town for being followers of Jesus, that Jesus appeared to them in the room. And what did Jesus say to them? He said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. The one thing the disciples needed more than anything else, Jesus offered them. And it was peace. Peace in the midst of the chaos. Peace in the midst of the confusion. Peace. In the midst of the storm. Some of you came here today and you sure could use some peace. You're anxious all the time. You're not sleeping very well. You're worried about this. You're worried about that. You're stressed out. Friends, the only one who can bring you a peace that passes all understanding, that guards your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus is Jesus. Well, how do I know that? Well, this past week, for those of you who've been around Sagebrush for a while, you know that my daughter, years ago, broke her back in gymnastics. And she has had four surgeries to try to fix and repair the damage that was done to her back. It's a long story, but she's been through four surgeries. Uh, We were fortunate enough to find a hospital in Phoenix that was going to try to do another procedure that might alleviate some of the pain that she lives with on a daily basis. So this past week... They went to have the procedure done, and the doctor, unfortunately, took a needle and pierced her spinal cord, and spinal fluid began to come out of my daughter's back, causing her to have headaches, nausea. They then did a thing called a blood patch, which is supposed to uh, stop the spinal fluid from escaping the spine, and it was not successful. And they went a second time, so three days, three procedures. And the second time, they put a blood patch with some glue in it to try to stop the the oozing of the spinal fluid. And they're thinking, maybe, she has to be on her back for the next 48 hours, they're thinking that that's going to heal her spine. But we're not even certain about the procedure that started it all to see if it's going to alleviate the pain. Now, friends... Uh, When your child's going through it, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you call out to God 
to intervene. And the result isn't what you want. What do you do in that situation? I hold on. I hold on. Even when it doesn't make any sense. I hold on and I pray that he would give me his peace. That passes all understanding. That when you find yourself in this storm and it's just raging all around you. That he would be the eye in the midst of the storm. Oh friends, his eye is always upon you. And he will carry you and he will sustain you and he will overwhelm you with his presence. That's what the disciples needed more than anything else. And oh my goodness, they were so excited. Don't you think they'd be so excited? I mean, all their hopes were gone when Jesus passed away three days earlier. But now Jesus has conquered death and the grave and sin. And they're high-fiving each other. They're belly-bopping each other. All the disciples are except for one. Thomas isn't there. I don't know what happened to Thomas. I don't know why he wasn't on time. But he shows up late. And when he gets there, Jesus has already left. And so the disciples say, oh, Thomas, well, you blew it, man. I can't believe you blew it. Jesus is risen from the dead. And you would think that Thomas would look at these men that he's been hanging around with for the last three, three and a half years and believe everything that they said. But Thomas doesn't believe any of it. He thinks there might be a hidden camera. Somebody's punking him. That's what he's thinking. Because look at what he says. He says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I get it. Who's ever heard of someone rising again from the dead? Some of you are here today because a friend invited you to come. You're like, well, they've asked me before. And I didn't want to go. But I hear there's hot dogs. So, and it's all you can eat. So that's got, you got that going for you as well. So I'll come have a hot dog. I like my friend. He's a nice guy. I think I'll come have a couple of hot dogs. It's not going to hurt anything. And you don't believe this stuff. You don't buy into this stuff. And every time somebody tries to talk to you about Jesus, you're like, I don't believe that. Say, why don't you believe it? I just don't believe it. That's why I just don't believe it. That's why I don't believe it. <laughs> Sounds very intelligent, doesn't it? Can I be honest with you? And thank you for coming. Can I be honest with you? Are you a dishonest doubter or an honest doubter? Because it's okay if you're an honest doubter. But here's what I found to be true. There's very few honest doubters anymore. There, most people are dishonest. They, they, they have some questions. But they really don't want answers to their questions. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not like they're coming to church to figure it out. It's not like they're Googling for the answer, right? It's not like they've read a book to find out what the evidence is that might demand a verdict. No, they just don't believe. Why don't you believe? Well, I just don't believe. But why don't you? Well, my mom didn't believe. My dad didn't believe. My cousin Eddie didn't believe, so I don't believe. Dishonest doubters use the questions that they have to push people away. They, they don't want to have the conversation. They, they don't want to dig into it. They, they don't want to know the truth, even though the truth will set you free. But an honest doubter keeps showing up. An honest doubter wants to know. And the reason they want to know is because their eternity is kind of in the balance. I mean, how can you say you don't believe what the Bible says if you've never even read it for yourself? And yet you'll meet people from time to time. Well, I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that Bible. 
Why don't you believe the Bible? Well, there's lots of errors and contradictions. Well, what errors? What contradictions? Well, I just hear there's errors and contradictions. So I know they're in there somewhere. You probably know where they're at. And we're kind of giggling because we've had conversations with people like this. You're like, come on, man. Read it for yourself. Study what God has to say. Look at the information. Look at the evidence. Friends, I'm telling you, we have a reasonable faith. But if you're a dishonest doubter, can I tell you what you're never going to do? You're never going to text us. You're not going to dial that number 505-922-9200 and have a conversation with the pastor because you might get the answer to your question and you don't really want it. And you're certainly not going to go over to the first steps room and have a conversation with one of our pastors. But honest doubters will. Honest doubters will walk in that room and say, you know, i got some questions about this. I'm not certain about this. I'm not certain about that. And then we can have a conversation. Maybe we can answer your questions. Maybe it's just another step in your spiritual journey of finding out the truth. You know what I love about Thomas? He's an honest doubter. How do I know he's an honest doubter? He keeps showing up. A week goes by. And the disciples, once again, are in the upper room. And this time, Thomas isn't late. He's still showing up. He's still holding on. He still wants to see the evidence. Jesus appears. And he says, Thomas, come here. Place your fingers in my wounds. Put your fist in my side. Stop doubting. And believe. And after Thomas had done that, what was his conclusion? He said, my Lord and my God. I'm going to tell you something. If you'll really study this stuff, and if you'll truly seek the truth, you will come to the same conclusion that Thomas came to. You will say, my Lord and my God. Now, friends, even though the disciples were extremely excited about Jesus rising again from the dead, there was one disciple who had some unfinished business with Jesus. And that was Peter. On the first night when Jesus appears in the upper room when Thomas wasn't there, you would think that Peter would have walked over to Jesus and say, I'm so excited that you've done what you said you would do. But I denied you. Not once, not twice, but I did it three times. And I I just need to know, will you forgive me? Can I still be one of your followers? Can I still be one of your disciples? Because you know that Peter is overwhelmed with guilt over what he's done. But here's what's interesting. The scripture doesn't say that there was any conversation between Peter and Jesus. There's no place in scripture on that night where Peter goes over to Jesus and has that conversation. It just lingers with Peter. And every time Jesus shows up, There's no time up to the point we're going to get to where Peter and Jesus have that conversation that Peter desperately needs to have. In fact, Peter becomes so disillusioned that he goes back to the old family business. He goes back to his old way of life. He goes back to fishing. He and some of the disciples decide they're going to go fishing one night, and now it's early in the morning. This is what the Bible says. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. 
He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Do you remember years earlier there was a scene with Jesus, Peter, Andrew, James, and John? And Jesus was teaching the people from a boat. And then afterwards, you know, the Peter and Andrew, they'd been out fishing all night. And they were undoing the nets, the knots in their nets. And, and they hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what, I know you got your nets good to go. Go back out in the deep water and throw your nets down for a catch. You remember that? And then they caught so many fish, they had to call their partners over, James and John. And they brought their boats over. And they, they, both boats began to sing. What's happening here? It, it's, an, it's a reenactment of that scene, isn't it? They've been out fishing all night. He's allowing the disciples to start over again. And so he says, hey, guys, have you caught any fish? They say, I haven't caught anything. He says, well, I think you put your net on this one side of the boat. I think you'll catch some. Look what happens next. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. Peter wants to get to Jesus as fast as he can. And so he starts swimming. But somewhere along the way, he slows down to swim. Now, how do I know that? Because <laughs> he ends up on the shore at the same time the boat does. Think about what the boat has to do. It has to bring in that huge haul of fish, has to turn around, has to row all the way in. And Peter's an experienced fisherman, so I'm guessing he's an experienced swimmer as well. I think he gets so excited, he wraps his outer garment in, he jumps in the water, he's going to get to Jesus as quickly as he possibly can. But somewhere along the way, he slows down his stroke. Why? Because I think he remembers the greatest failure of his life. I think he thinks he's too far gone. That Jesus has given up on him. And I think he slows down because he doesn't want to face Jesus all by himself. He wants to be in the midst of the crowd. So they pull the boats up on the shore, don't they? And the Bible gives an interesting detail. They said they caught 153 fish that day. My question's always been, who counted them? <laughs> it had to have been Peter, don't you think? One fish, two fish, three fish, four fish, five fish, six fish, seven fish, eight fish, nine fish, ten don't you think? Why? Well, he gets up on the shore, and Jesus has made a fire. And the Bible gives this little detail. It was a charcoal fire. When Peter, days earlier, stood outside the temple waiting for Jesus to come out of the trial, he was warming himself by a fire. This is where he denies Jesus three times. You remember what kind of fire it was? It's a charcoal fire. Jesus is resetting the scene. And they sit down and they begin to have breakfast, and I bet Peter didn't have a single bite, do you think? Stomach's churning, can barely look Jesus in the eye. And then Jesus is the one that reaches out to Peter. Wasn't Peter reaching out to Jesus? Jesus says, Peter, come over here. I want, I want to talk to you for a second. Peter comes over. Jesus says, I've got some questions for you. Question number one, do you love me? Peter says, well, you know everything. Of course I love you. Well, feed my sheep. Hey, hey, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know everything. Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you, do you love me, Peter? Ask him a third time. What's he doing? Three denials, three confessions of faith. 
And I want you to see how Jesus starts this conversation. It says, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Don't think for a second that Peter missed that. Who changed Peter's name to Peter? It was once Simon. It was Jesus that changed his name, wasn't it? Jesus said, you'll no longer be called Simon anymore. Oh, no, your name is Peter, which means rock, and I will build my church upon you, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. You see what he's doing? He said, I'm going to call you Simon because I'm not going to assume that you want the same relationship we had before. Maybe you don't want to follow me anymore. Maybe you don't want to serve me in this way, so I'm not going to assume anything, Simon. But I see things in you still. I still see that rock. I still see that person of what can be and what should be. So for every time you denied me, I'm going to give you the chance to profess your faith in me. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my sheep. Get back in the game. Some of you have blown it so bad. Oh my gosh, I've blown it so bad so many times in my life. And you come to the Lord and you ask him to forgive you. You ask him to set you right again. And he does, doesn't he? Over and over and over again. Because he has just bent on this idea that he sees something in us that's greater than anything we can see in ourselves. And so Peter becomes the one, just 40 days later on the day of Pentecost, who proclaims that Jesus has risen again from the dead. And the church begins. Because Jesus doesn't ever throw anybody away. Jesus walks with failures as if they've never failed. One of the many reasons I love him so very, very much. Well, what happens next? Well, the last time... The disciples see Jesus is in Acts chapter 1. Jesus is now going to ascend into the heavens, sit at the right hand of God. He's going to do it in full view of the disciples. Before he does it, they ask the question, the disciples do, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now they still think that he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. They still don't get it even though he's risen again from the dead. They do still don't get that he came to take on sin, death, and the grave. They still don't get that he came to set up a kingdom that would last forever. So look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the days or times the Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now when Jesus says you'll be my witnesses, that word witness, shockingly enough, has many different meanings. Did you know that? One meaning for the word witness is the most common meaning, which is you will testify what you've seen. You will be a witness to what you've seen me do, and you will share that with other people. That's what it means to be a witness. But also to be a witness in this sense of this word means to be a doer of deeds. What that means is, is not only will you share what you have seen, but you will live for me. And you will stick out like a sore thumb. Your priorities will be different than other people's priorities. Your loyalty will be different. Your lifestyle will be different. You will be the light of the world. You will be the the salt of the earth. You will live your life for an audience of one. And people will see the difference that, that I've made in your life. They'll not just hear about the difference, but they'll see you living it out each and every single day. There was a little girl who went to church with her parents. 
And she went to big church, and she got confused at something the pastor said. They were driving home. The little girl said, I don't understand what the pastor said today. And the mom said, well, what are you talking about? What are you confused about? She said, the pastor said that God is so big that he can hold the whole world in his hands. Mom said, that's right. That's correct. God can hold the whole world in his hands. She said, well, the pastor also said that when we ask Jesus to come into our life, that that Jesus, God, comes to live inside of us. And and the mom said, well, yeah, that's right. She said, well, I don't understand. If God is big enough to hold the whole world in his hands, and yet he comes to live inside of us, shouldn't he show through? Shouldn't he? The answer is he should. There was a third definition for the word witness. You ready for this one? It was martyr. You will be so committed to the call of Jesus Christ that you'll be willing to lay down your life. To lay down everything for the king of kings and for the Lord of lords. Once again, Jesus reminds them of the commitment and what's at stake to follow him. Then Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Full view of the disciples. Now, this is a huge risk for Jesus, isn't it? I mean, these guys, they weren't great, were they? I mean, my goodness, they're putting their foot in their mouth all the time. They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They fumbled the ball more times than the Dallas Cowboys. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I mean, they messed up a lot. (laughs) That just came to me. I think that was the Holy Spirit speaking. (laughs) There's an old legend. I don't think it happened, but an old legend that said that Jesus went back to heaven and he had the wounds from how he was beaten and tortured for our sins. And the angel Gabriel came up to him and said, you suffered an awful lot for those people. Jesus said, yes, I did. Gabriel said, well, do they know what you did for them? Do they know how much you love them? How much you want to forgive them, make them right with God, pay the sin debt that they owe a holy God? Do they understand? Jesus said, well, a few of them do. I've entrusted the message to Peter and James and John and Andrew and a few other people and They'll pass it on. They'll pass it on to other people, and then those people will pass it on to other people, and they just keep on going like a wildfire. And Gabriel looked perplexed. He said, that's your plan? See, he knew the stuff that men were made of. Jesus said, well, yeah, that, that's my plan. And Gabriel said, you don't have any other plan? I mean, what if 2,000 years from now, people grow tired? People grow scared? They're afraid to talk about you in the public forum because they'll be called a bigot or a racist or intolerant or judgmental. They'll want to be kind of people who just kind of do it under the radar. What if, I don't know, 2,000 years from now, the people don't keep passing the message on? You've got to have another plan. Jesus said, I don't have any other plan. Friends, you get this, right? We are his plan. And then Jesus goes to the heavens and angels speak to the disciples and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Oh, friends, Jesus is coming back. And we'll start that series next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to be faithful, a faithful witness 
who shares your truth, who lives for you, who's willing to lay down their life for you. Lord, I pray for anybody in this room or anybody at home who has questions and doubts. I get it. Lord, you know my questions. And Lord, even this past week, you know my doubts. I pray, God, that they would finally have the conversation they've been putting off. Lord, they'd finally open up your word. They'd finally study and they would see how amazing you are. Lord, I pray this is the first step to their journey of faith with you. And Lord, I pray that even in this moment, you would overwhelm them with your peace that passes all understanding. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.